Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today I'm going to be talking with Robert Hilburn, the legendary rock writer who has a new book out, Paul Simon, The Life, for which Paul Simon extensively cooperated, so you really get, it's not an authorized biography, but you really do get a sense of Paul's point of view on his career. It was another very good Paul Simon biography by Peter Ames Carlin that Paul did not cooperate with, and you really get a sense of a lot of people who did not like Paul Simon. And this was this really gives Paul Simon an opportunity to defend himself, explain himself, and get deep inside his creative process. And there was a lot of other excellent reporting as well by Mr. Robert Hilburn, and I think we have him right here. Yeah, Brian, good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here. Sure, thanks. It's funny when you mentioned authorized biography, because when I was talking to the publisher, they said, you know, sometimes it's not good to say it's an authorized biography because people will think it's, a, you know, kind of a whitewash. And I said, okay, well, let's call it an un- unauthorized biography. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, he, he, it's the first time he ever talked to a biographer. We spent, it ended up like a hundred hours. We were going to, initially the idea was I would talk to him one day a month for five hours. That would, that would give him to 60 hours, but it, got, it would reach, really reached a hundred hours. But the great thing, Brian is he, from the beginning. It was my editorial control. He didn't want a book that was uh, you know a love story to Paul Simon. He wanted a book that would be kind of respected, and he never violated that. You know, it, it's I, I thought at some point because you know he's known as a control freak in the studio and all that kind of stuff, but he was had a lot of integrity about that. He never drew a line in the sand. Yeah, and there were a couple times, I understand, where you were worried it might be coming, and, and obviously he didn't have control, but he could have cut off your ability to quote his lyrics and all that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right, and he could have taken, uh, not shared any of the family pictures with me, and he could have denounced the book, you know, I mean, those were all unpleasant things, but, and, and there was, a, you know, the most difficult spot was when I just didn't feel I was getting enough from him, and uh, because he's not interested in the past a lot, he's always interested in talking about his new music. I did maybe six or seven interviews with him when I was at the LA Times, and I thought he was about the most articulate guy I ever interviewed. Bono was Springsteen, there's others, but he was very particularly articulate, and so I thought this was going to be easy. He would sit down and tell me his life story, but in those interviews, Brian, he was always talking about the new music. You know, when he when you say, "What? Tell me about writing Sound of Silence." Oh, who cares about that? That's a long time ago. You know, he said, "Come on, let's listen to some of my new music." I mean, that was a so for a long time that was we were kind of very almost at a stalemate because of that. So. In the end, though, you got his entire story, including a lot of my favorite stuff was just really in-depth accounts of how he wrote some of his greatest songs and some of the songs that people might not like as much, which is often just as fascinating. Somehow he began, after maybe a year, he began taught. he was always eloquent on the music, but he, after a year, he somehow opened up, and I think he either re- either trusted me more or he realized that the book has to have a lot about his personal life, so he was became very eloquent. But some of the best stuff was at the very end when he opened up about those songs, like the, writing Darling Lorraine. I thought that was just an incredible thing, how he went line by line, how each line came about. And that was one of the most interesting things to me, was the way he writes a song. Now, if I were a, wanted to be a songwriter, I would, and I tried a couple times to kind of write a song, and they always came out like Chris Christopherson songs. I don't know why, hmm. because I, I love Chris a lot. But I would think the first thing I do is, well, what do I want to write about? Because if you're a journalist, that's the first thing. Well, what do I want to write about? But with Paul, he lets the music lead the way. He'll sit down on, at guitar or piano 
and play just random strumming, finger-picking, playing the piano, until something he plays hits him, resonates with him, is evocative. Then he'll try to figure out in how to say in words what that music is making him feel. And he'll take it one line at a time. He'll come up with the first line. Now, let me look at that line. What am I saying there? What do I need to say after that? And then the theme of the, of the song comes through that process. It's discovery. He discovers the theme as he goes along. That's why I think his music is so different, so varied. It's, it's never the same. I mean, of any great songwriter of the of the you know the rock generation, most of them stay within certain boundaries. You know vaguely what it's going to sound like musically. You know the themes vaguely. But my goodness, to go from Sound of Silence to Mrs. Robinson to Still Crazy to Me and Julio to Graceland, that's remarkable because he's always trying to move forward. He knows the the only way to keep getting better is to find new musical inspiration that's to start that song process. That's why the Latin music, the gospel music, the doo-wop music, the South African music, he's an endless searcher in that sense of finding new inspiration because he knows that if you don't, it's going to get stale. One of the things I was struck by in the book, a small moment that says a lot about the way Paul Simon works, was he had the music for what would become Kodachrome. But the original idea he had was something like, I'm going home. And a lot of people, probably Neil Young, for example, would have just gone with first thought, best thought. But Paul knew that wasn't good enough. And he kind of racked his brain, right, for weeks to come up with something different. Yeah, yeah. He, he Again, he starts off with the music. The music inspires him. The Crota song that became Crota was nostalgic. It sounded like the old days, childhood. And coming home is the perfect example. But... He knows it's been used 15,000 times as a song or a song title, so he immediately rejects that. He's got this great quality control system in his head, and he tries to come up with new something else to express it. So over a period of two or three days, he often just shouts out words as, as he's playing the music. Kodachrome came in. Well, that's interesting. Now, I would never have thought of Kodachrome, but Paul's realizes Kodachrome, that's photographs, that's family albums, that's like going home. So that's what he does, you know, which is... Again, time after time, he does that kind of thing. You know, lines of songs he'll throw out because it's too familiar. Because he's always, he's got this great sense that he has to get improved. And he got a lot of that from his father, who was a musician. You, you can never settle, Paul. Uh, you don't get an A for effort. You've got to keep working hard and you've got to keep getting better. Because he saw early on how so many artists lose direction. Elvis Presley, how fame destroyed him, how people wanted the fame and the money more than the great song. But to Paul, it was the the thing that was above everything was the great song. And the only way to do the great song is keep getting better. Don't repeat yourself. It would have been easy for him, like the Rolling Stones say, to just keep touring with Simon and Garfunkel forever because they would always draw a crowd because of that iconic status they had. But he was willing to give up all of that to keep making his music better. He didn't think he could get any better with Simon and Garfunkel, so he walks away. That was pretty dramatic. And I want to dig into some details of this story in a minute, but in general, and I kind of hinted at this in the intro, there is a sense that Paul Simon is a difficult person, that Paul Simon can be hard to deal with, that Paul Simon alienated some collaborators over the years. What was your general takeaway from your reporting from talking to him of where that idea came from and how much accuracy there is it and how Paul feels about it. 
Well, I think there's accuracy. I think in the 60s and 70s, there was he was kind of a prickly guy. Uh, he he puts a lot of it to the fact that he was short. He thought people were always trying to. They thought they could beat him up, or they could they could uh, out talk him, or overrule him. That, that he wasn't tough enough. So he would be tough. He would stand up against the record company, against anything he thought was trying to take away his music or didn't give him respect. So that's one part of it, is that he would defend himself. But secondly, his father had a way of talking about music that was very uh, blunt. Paul would bring a song to him when he was starting out as a songwriter. Or it first started out when Paul would bring him songs that he liked, like Earth Angel by the Penguins. And Paul's dad would say, that's terrible. What are you listening to that kind of stuff for? (laughs) When Paul would bring his own songs, he would virtually say, Paul, that's terrible. Can't you write better than that? Because he didn't believe in sugarcoating thought the only way to improve was to confront the problem. So I think Paul in the studio can be blunt at times. You know, one Ben Montench, who's a terrific keyboard player with Tom Petty, Yeah. one time was with Simon doing a song for Saturday Night Live. He was in the band, and they were rehearsing. And ben, and, and usually when you rehearse, when Ben Mont would come in, the, the, the artist would just say, play something, give me some keyboard there. And with Paul, though, he looked up at Ben Mott and said, what you're doing is worthless. Now, that's <laughs> dark, you know? And, and Ben Mott was kind of shaken by that. And he, I think Simon saw that he might have said something, and he went over to and, and tried to say, I didn't mean uh, that. And I, when I later asked Paul about that, he said, oh, I would never use a word like worthless. But when he's in the middle of the creation, He's the blunt guy who knows the only way to do is to get better. Don't sit there and say, well, that's very good, but let's try it a different way. And finally, Benmont said what Paul came up with was terrific. He's got a great sense of what he wants, but he can be blunt at times. But people who work with him for years, they speak so well of him. You know, I mean, the musicians stay with him for 20 and 30 years. The people that in his life talk so well about him, Mo Austin, uh, Quincy Jones, uh, it's it, it can be, it's that initial contact that can be troublesome, I guess, and that was really meaning in the '60s and '70s. After Graceland, he became a w- much warmer, confident, gracious person. Well, I think you got him to speak really honestly and interestingly about his insecurities. You know, he talked about you know th- that it really bugged him to be short. It really bugged him to be losing his hair when he was young. It really bugged him to be a, a person so visible in the world and, and perhaps not looking like the Adonis that maybe a pop star looks like in people's imaginations, including him. And, and I, I love that honesty from him. It was very vulnerable of him to, to admit to all that. Yeah, and the, the great thing was, uh, one of my favorite parts is when he's, he, he's looking for a rock and roll hero and he's sitting in this family car in the supermarket in Queens, New York, the parking lot while his family is shopping he's turning the dial and he hears Elvis Presley and he goes oh my god that's what I want to be I want to be Elvis Presley that voice uh, that name he comes from the south which was this magical place for for Paul everybody came from the south in rock and roll Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis and Buddy Holly so then that's what I want to be Elvis Presley then three months later he sees Elvis on television and he goes oh my god I can never be Elvis (laughs) Presley you know, I'm not six feet tall. I haven't got that hair. I'm not from the South. I haven't got that name. And so he says, I, I want to still be music, but I've got to do something softer. You know, I can't compete and be a rock and roll star moving about the stage. So he was always thinking, how can I, what can I do to make myself effective? Uh, but that was a shock to him when he knew he couldn't be Elvis. 
And at this point, I thought it'd be a good time to dig into the Paul Simon-Art Garfunkel relationship, which has a lot of twists and turns that I think are not visible to the outside observer that you really got at. And I think maybe we'll start by listening to uh, Hey Little Schoolgirl, which was the song they recorded in, I think, 1957. Robert, what was the immediate, what was the initial genesis of the Simon Garfunkel partnership in high school? How did it come together? Well, the amazing thing was uh, Paul was born in New York, New Jersey, but his mother, when he was Paul was two years old, had to go to Kew Gardens Hills, New York, to help her brother take care of her of his son because his wife had died. So that's how Paul gets to Queens, New York. And the, and wonders of wonders, the twists of fate, Brian, he moved two blocks from a family named Garfunkel. Now, he didn't actually meet Art until several years later. He saw Art sing at an assembly in, in grade school, and he was, wow, what a beautiful voice. And he noticed how the girls really responded to this music and stuff. And uh, So he eventually di- discovers... Uh, rock and roll and doo-wop and Elvis Presley and stuff. And but he want, he he again he couldn't be Elvis, so he thought doo-wop. That's kind of interesting. Then he hears the Everly Brothers, and that's kind of interesting. You know the harmony. So I've got to have somebody sing with me. So he goes to Garfunkel. Art, how about singing? Just sing together. And they start singing. They try to write songs. They get inspired by uh, what's uh, Wake Up Little Susie by the Everly Brothers, and they write the song Hey Schoolgirl. And they take it around to little pub, so little record labels. Nobody's interested in it. So they say, we'll make a copy, a demo ourselves. And they go to a place and make a demo, and there happened to be a record company executive or owner there, a very small company, ironically called Big Records. And he puts the record out. It's a modest hit in New York. They get an American bandstand. Uh, they have a little bit of success. but And Paul, again, writes the songs. So... Paul brings a bunch of new songs to the head of that record company, some of which are in an Everly Brothers style, which would be a second Tom and Jerry single, but he had some songs that were in a Elvis Presley style, so the record company owner, hoping to make some more money, says, hey, Paul, why don't you record yourself some of the one of these Elvis Presley songs? And Paul says, okay, sure. He was going to continue to make Tom and Jerry records, but they didn't tell Art of the plan, and he discovered... Paul had made a solo record, he was devastated because he thought he was going to leave him. And uh, that was a split that, that caused five years they didn't talk to each other. And the amazing thing I found, one of the most amazing things was I found an interview that Paul's mother did for an oral history that never came out. But at that time, back in 1957, Garfunkel's father realized that Paul had all the power because he wrote the songs. And he tried to get Paul's father to sign a contract saying Paul would only write and record with Art Garfunkel. Isn't that amazing? 16, <laughs> 17-year-old kids, and we trying to get a contract, and Paul's father says, no, he might want to do something different in his life. And Art has said he never forgave Paul Simon for that perceived betrayal back in 1957 when he first considered a solo career. It's incredible when you yeah, think well, about that. I, 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 I was in Paul's archives and uh, I found some letters that Garfunkel had wrote him over the years, back in this, at the time they were still together. Uh, 
and 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 after they broke up, and it was very some of the letters were very painful. You know, he accused Paul of using him for Paul's purposes and not really caring about him, and they were very sad letters. So I think there was this tension and resentment that was always kind of underlying them. And in Art's uh, memoirs, he said it, vaguely in the context of this, I never forget and I never really forgive. So it's so it's something that's always been burning him because that's pretty traumatic. And then. Paul kind of went on to have sort of an apprenticeship in songwriting for a number of years. He he went to Queens College, but the whole time he was writing and in fact was, you know, sort of in the in the kind of he wasn't literally in the Brill building, right, but he was in that milieu of of trying to write commercial songs for for a number of years, right? Yeah, yeah, what happened was after Tom and Jerry break up, Art wasn't really that 100% committed to music. He goes to Columbia University studying math and architecture and stuff. Paul was just obsessed with music. He goes to Queens College to kind of please his family. But the real day began, began when he'd get out of class and he'd take the subway into New York and go around to little record companies, try to pitch his own songs. He'd go to uh, uh, do demo records that, uh, that to try the for other songwriters who were trying to pitch their songs. And he spent five years doing that, and he had zero success. <laughs> he didn't have a hit, and I was always thinking, my gosh, five years, to my mind, that's a long time to have failure after failure after failure. And Paul maintained, well, no, I was learning the record business. I was learning how to make records and so forth, so maybe so. So anyway, I try, like a lot of Simon and Garfunkel fans, I tried to find those old demos, you know, those old songs he did. And there are some CD collections, three and four disc collections, and I listened to them all, and you know what? There isn't one good song in any of it. <laughs> all he was doing was trying to copy what was on the radio. The worst thing, what, what thousands of young musicians do, he would hear something, and one of the, to show you how bad some of this stuff was, one of the songs he recorded as a demo was, there was an old Connie Francis song called Lipstick on Your Collar, big hit. So he records a song called I Want to Be the Lipstick on Your Lips. Now, Paul Simon, this great songwriter, Bridge Over to Water, the boxer, the sign of silence, I want to be the lipstick on your lips. And there was, uh, he ended up releasing a song as Jerry Landis in 63, I think, or late 62, called The Lone Teen Ranger. <laughs> and we should hear that because it's on YouTube and stuff. You can check that out. I'll soar away. But I think two things were influencing him and heading him into the direction that would end up defining him, or at least the first part of his career, is one, you describe uh, he became interested in the Greenwich Village folk scene. And two, he was taking all these literature classes in college that were, were really opening him up. Is it, those, those were kind of the two things, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in writing the book, I, you, you, of course, want to tell Paul Simon's life as much as you can tell. You talk to, you know, 80, 100 people who knew him. You talk to his best friend from grade school. You talk to his uh, first two wives. You talk to his brother. You talk to other people, you know, work with him over the years, but you're trying to tell the personal story. But my real sub-theme was 
artistry. Here's this guy who wrote all these great songs and who... New Yorker had a great essay a few years ago saying of all the guys from the 60s and 70s, Paul Simon has done the best music in this dec- in this century, this decade, since 2000. That's pretty remarkable. So I wanted to find out where that artistry comes from and then how you protect it against fame, divorce, drugs, changes in public taste, fear of failure, all that stuff. And the that, that's, so I went around to Quincy Jones, Alan Toussaint, a lot of really smart people who've worked with a lot of great talent to ask them about that issue of how art, true artistry comes about. And of the thousands of people who make records, there may be only a hundred who were great, song, you know, really terrific songwriters. The rest are kind of vaguely copying what each other are doing. Dylan once said, oh, people today are still... Uh, running on the fumes of the 60s. But, but uh, so I, I try to do that. And the, and the great thing is exactly what you mentioned. Uh, he was running all these terrible, terrible, terrible songs. <laughs> and he finds a class with a teacher named Rose Lamont. She was a French from France. And she taught, she had these literature classes. And she taught him about poetry, T.S. Eliot, Camus, Emily Dickinson. And he loved that stuff. And so that gave him a literary edge that he never had before. But, and, but even while he was learning that literary edge, he was still writing these terrible songs. Then the folk music comes along. He hears Joan Baez, and he likes those chords she's playing. And then she hear, he hears Bob Dylan. And that was the thing that really was the turning point, because folk music, he didn't like all those old traditional folk songs, like I went down to the river and killed my baby and stuff. <laughs> he liked the fact that Dylan was talking about this world and this time. And those two things prepared him to be a great songwriter, but they still weren't enough. Something else had to happen in his life. And that was? That was, he He sits down, he hears Dylan, he knows these things are terribly he's been written. He says, either I can write something that's good myself, or I don't know if he ever said, or I'll quit, but in, it makes it more dramatic to think that. But and law school, law school was looming when he wrote yeah, Sound I, of Silence, though law school was looming. Yeah, but that was just, again, to please his parents. He, <laughs> he go to classes, he did poorly, he dropped out after one year. But the thing he did was, do I have a voice or not? Am I ever going to be any good at this or not? So he would go into his family bathroom with his guitar, turn off the lights so it would just be him alone with his music, and he'd turn the water on in the tub so that it would echo off the tile. It sounded like, almost like, like a recording studio echo. And he sat there night after night in, in November of 63, and trying to hit hit chords or something that would get him started as a songwriter. And after a few days of that, Kennedy gets assassinated. And he's, and in his mother's interview, that unpublished interview, she said he spent two days in his room despondent, crying, broken. That was his hero, John F. Kennedy, like all teenagers and young people in those days. And, and he finally goes back into the bathroom, turns off the light, turns on the radio, starts turns on the water, starts hicking that guitar, and after three or four or five days, he hits that opening note of Sound of Silence, and what does that make me feel? And he goes, hello, darkness, my old friend. The darkness is the darkness of the bathroom. The darkness is the, the spirit of the country and his own despair of that Kennedy's death. And that's what was, it took all of that to make him reach deep inside himself and to write a great song. That was his first great song. Indeed, and let's hear that for a minute. Hello, darkness, my old friend. 
I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound And then there's a great story, which is that he went to try to get a record deal and the sense was they already had Bob Dylan so maybe the Columbia didn't need another solo folky singer songwriter but somewhere he realizes that if it was a folk duo <laughs> he might have something there and so he's like hello art right basically yeah that's right he see after after uh he, the, the time around time sound of silence. He goes to England as a solo folk singer, plays clubs for a year, does all this kind of writes Homeward Bound, writes I'm a Rock, writes Kathy's song, and then he, then then he comes back to America and he says, uh, I want to get a contract with sound, with the Sound of Silence. I mean, not, and, and I went around to Columbia Records. He was going to go to Columbia, then he was going to go to Vanguard, which was a great folk label, and there. Tom Wilson, the producer, says, you know, that's, this is interesting, but I've already got Bob Dylan. We don't need another songwriter, a folk songwriter, and we we're looking for a group. And Paul says, ah, wait a minute. I have a friend who could sing with me. Let me bring him in. So the interesting thing, right, he did not go to Columbia Records as Simon and Garfunkel. He went as Paul Simon. He gets art. They go in together. Tom Wilson likes what they do, and then they cut the record. And that's when the you know the Simon and Garfunkel career starts. Now, one of the things that's hard to grasp as someone a little younger who came became aware of, of a Paul Simon who already had quite a thriving solo career is this sense that Paul had that he was being overshadowed by art in Simon and Garfunkel. And that he had this sense that people thought that because Garfunkel was taller, basically, that he might be writing the songs, that that Paul was the junior partner, even though he was writing all the songs. I, I, that's all hard to grasp, but I guess very real for Paul, right, in, in that relationship. Yeah, Paul's very sensitive. In grade school, I, I remember he said a teacher wrote on, he's very sensitive, he tends to cry, and you know, sometime in class. So he's, and, and so that, that sensitivity might have made him insecure and stuff so he's on stage art's taller he's got all the hair and he thinks the audience is watching art and he assumes most of them probably think he wrote the songs because and and paul is just a guitar player so that was always a kind of an insecurity that paul had about that and even when they break up paul thought everybody at columbia records thinks Art's going to be the star and not Paul Simon. But but see, at the same time Paul had that insecurity, Art had the insecurity that Paul has, writes the songs. He's the <laughs> power. He could leave at any minute. So there was that tension that would pop up every once in a while during Simon and Garfunkel. Although that's not to mean they didn't have great fun, they weren't great friends. That was, you know, Paul talks hours about what all the good times they had together as Simon and Garfunkel. But there was that underlying division that that never was healed. Art made at least two mistakes, I would say, by your account, probably more, but two major ones. One was going off to try to be a movie star, 
um, which include you know he he was uh, he was filming Catch Twenty Two, which was originally also supposed to have a part for Paul. And he ended up disappearing for a long time and then doing another movie on top of that. That that was didn't sit well with Paul Simon. And, and the second mistake is after Paul writes this song, Bridge Over Troubled Water, for him. And, uh, you know, it was Paul's mind that, that this should, Art should sing it. And then they every time Art would perform it live, because Paul would kind of go in the wings, the crowd would go crazy and Art would kind of accept the applause and never bring out... Paul as the writer, and that really got under Paul's skin, didn't it? Yeah, uh, the thing was, I, uh, the guitar, the uh, keyboard player, Larry Nectel, was on stage with Art, and after Art sang Bridge Over Trawater, he would turn and introduce Larry Nectel, and Paul was kind of waiting <laughs> backstage, You know, he, especially in his hometown, when they had the first New York show after Bridge came out, uh, he was think he hears all this great applause, and he thinks that's my song. And he hears Art introducing Larry, and he thinks, he's thinking, "Oh, he's going to introduce me. He's going to bring me out." But he didn't do it, you know, and uh, that hurt him a lot. But but the the point that you know, really exploring this thing, and that's one of the great things about writing a book. You have two two years to do something, rather than if you're doing a newspaper story, you usually have a day or a week or something. Paul, despite all the issues, all the egos conflicts they had, all the insecurities they had, the, the thing about art making uh, uh, movies and leaving Simon in the studio alone and Simon frustrated, look, I want to make this record and art's off making movies. And all of that stuff, none of it, I think, was ultimately responsible for Paul leaving. He would have left anyway at some point. That's because he was too talented and too ambitious to continue writing songs for that voice. He wanted to move into other things. If he didn't leave art, he could never have done probably me and Julio, Mother and Child Reunion, Graceland, those kind of, he wanted to go forward. I think he knew that if he stayed in Simon and Garfunkel, he had worn out those three chords he knew. He had to find more musical inspiration. He had to study other kinds of music. He had to grow. And if he just kept doing the Simon and Garfunkel stuff, it wouldn't have happened. By the end of the 70s, he would have probably been worn out and end up just repeating those old songs for the rest of his life with art. One thing that's interesting about Paul Simon is, again, the, as you said, his ability to not only move forward, but also to sort of focus and improve things that might have been missing from his early music. You know, you mentioned Ellen Willis, who was uh, an early and much acclaimed rock critic who had a real problem with Simon and Garfunkel. And I went back and read one of her critiques of them early on. It's funny. Also, it includes the the false premise that Art Garfunkel arranged the music. It said Paul Simon writes the songs and Art Garfunkel arranges them, which does show how people were confused back then. But she, she points out that what was missing from a lot of the, especially the early Simon Garfunkel stuff, was kind of a beat you know, and, and that it was, he was trying so hard to be poetic and intellectual that there wasn't the kind of um, primitive rhythmic uh, thing that you might want from your rock and roll. And that also the lyrics were a little bit undergraduate and a little bit pretentious. And, you know, I, I think even Paul might agree to a certain extent because look what he did afterwards, right? No, absolutely. That's what exactly he wanted. He was a rock and roller. He wasn't a folk artist. He wanted, and, and the thing is, people... For years, compared him to Dylan, he's copying Dylan. He's a second-rate Dylan, this and that. He wrote The Sound of Silence, which absolutely was influenced by Dylan. 
He wrote The Boxer, which was absolutely influenced by Dylan. But look after that. Mrs. Robinson, Bridge Over Troubled Water, Me and Julio, none of that's Bob Dylan. But people can, would continue for years to make a comparison between the two. And and the, the thing, though, he would agree with, with Ellen. You know, he wanted to beat, and he thinks Darling Conversation and I'm a Rock are the most juvenile <laughs> songs, uh, pretentious. Uh, so he wouldn't be against it. Now, one thing he would disagree, though, with a lot of the rock critics was they thought Simon and Garfunkel was too soft. This was the era of Hendrix and rock and roll and the Stones and all that kind of stuff, and that's what they were focused on. And they thought that Paul was too soft, and also several critics at that time complained that his music, adults could listen to it as well as young people. You know, grandparents could listen to it. They said it, was, it wasn't rock and roll enough. It wasn't our generation enough. And those were interesting things, you know, because Paul never figured himself part of any movement. I mean, again, the, the idea of going to Graceland and recording an album in South Africa was the furthest thing you could do strategically in pop music, because listeners in America don't like a lot of foreign music. That's why so little... There's so little foreign influence in American music because they, artists and record companies know it won't sell. Let's jump to Graceland because I think you do a great job of delving into the controversy that surrounded that album. And, you know, part of it was, part of it was very complicated. Part of it gets into these ideas that we're still grappling with, uh, with about you know, cultural appropriation and to what degree it's acceptable for, you know, a white American to be borrowing or delving into these sounds that, you know, quote unquote, don't belong to them. That's all very complicated. A very simple thing, though, is he probably could have been more okay as far as controversy had he taken the step of asking the permission of uh, the African National Congress to record there because the 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 cultural boycott that was of South Africa was really more about performing there it wasn't it was a little bit more of a gray area about recording which is always what Paul said but he made a deliberate i would say stubborn but i guess principle based decision that he wasn't going to ask anyone's permission to do something like that right there was a in his mind there was a principle involved yeah, here's the way I look at it. Uh, there was that city, Sun City, that South Africa put up to try to lure Western artists to come there to make it look like South Africa was a nice, wonderful place. And they were playing, paying artists millions of dollars. Sinatra played there. Other people played there. But Simon and Garfunkel refused. He wouldn't go there for a million dollars a night. But he w- he would go there to record with South African musicians. That wasn't a... He was, again, that was the least commercial thing you could do. He went there because he loved the sound of that music. He was inspired by it. And his argument, Paul thinks a lot about it. He's very thoughtful and he's stubborn. Let's say that as you're right. He said, look, as much as I respect the ANC, it's really a political party. It's like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. I don't have any political party, I don't have to ask them for the right to make music. He said, if the artists want to record with me, and they, they, they were eager to record because they thought this might give the, their music a world showcase, he says, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to ask for anyone else's permission. An artist does not have to have permission to make art. That was his feeling. It is, you know, that was his, that was the principle he had in his head. Um, and it, you know, it caused, it caused a lot of trouble, that, that one decision. 
it's a long, there's so much, I did, I went into it somewhat, I didn't go into it as long as I could have, because I, it's so much of this is available on the internet, since, you know, someone can follow it up and make it their own decisions. But one thing I really think is that, uh, again, it was not a decision where he's saying, I'm going there to make millions of dollars. He thought his record career was pretty much over. The One Trick Pony was a failure, the movie, the fi- subsequent album, Hearts and Bones was a failure, he gets divorced by... Uh, Carrie Fisher, all at the same time, and he picks up Billboard magazine, a music trade, and it was the first issue of the year. And it had the first page on the front page. It had a radio disc jockey saying, "You know, we're looking for new voices now. We're not going to play people like Paul Simon anymore." So his career is a mess. His marriage is a mess, and there's nobody caring about his music. So he goes there not as a strategy to revive his career, because you wouldn't go to South Africa to revive your career, but he goes there because he wants to make music. And I think there's a certain purity in that. that you know. And I think at the, the end result, look what Graceland did. And I'm not trying to apologize for Simon. I really believe this. I think that music, is that's his masterpiece, is, is Graceland. Taking that South African sound, superimposing American pop music on it, it's a hit all around the world. I think 50 years from now, Dylan and Simon are the two songwriters that are going to be most remembered and revered. And I think in that case, Graceland might be more important than any Dylan song because I think by in 50 years, the world will be more, more together. It'll be a closer place. People will be sharing music more around the world. And I think a lot of artists are going to be influenced by what he did, and they'll try to do something like that. Well, let's hear the title track of Graceland for a minute, even though we all have it in our heads. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland. Now, the actual process, leaving aside the controversy over it, was extremely complex. He he went over there, and they, you know, getting the tracks was one thing, or getting some version of the tracks, but then there was tremendous amounts of editing and writing over it, and drafts, and and just it, it was a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. What he what happened was. He made Hearts and Bones, that album, before Graceland, and it didn't do well, partially because people were kind of turned off after One Trick Pony. They kind of considered him passe. But he thought the songs were very good, but he didn't record them well. So he says, you know what, next time I'm going to record the track first, and then I'm going to write the song. I'm going to make sure I have a great track. And so he records these six or seven songs in South Africa, comes back to New York, and he spends months, a year, yeah, they have to edit it and get get make all the stuff he took, all the you know, dozens and dozens of instrumental tracks, put some together, then he writes the songs. He writes the words and the music to go with it. That was an infinite process. I mean the album was only maybe ten percent done when he left South Africa, maybe even less than that. The base the, the just think of a of a basketball court, the floor was all that was there. And then he builds this process over a period of months and that was you know, that again that was what was remarkable to me is how he how he combined the South African sounds and American pop music. Now, some brilliant realization was when he incorporated some American stuff that 
was related in some way to the South African music, including Los Lobos. And of course, the guys in Los Lobos are super mad at him. They feel that that they he sort of robbed them out of publishing for the song they worked out. What's your take on that particular controversy? I mean, first of all, I mean, the the, the American, those two songs, the songs he did in uh, Crowley, Louisiana, and that were afterthoughts. He didn't have enough from South Africa to finish the album, so he, he decided, look, I need some more time on the album. And Lenny, Lenny Warnerker, the president of Warner Brothers Records, says, hey, why don't you come out and record with Los Lobos? It's this new group we have. It's very good. We're trying to promote them. Uh, and he says, okay, he trusts Lenny, and he goes out. And I think what happened, there was a misunderstanding. I think Los Lobos felt they were collaborating, where Paul said, thought they were studio musicians again, like he always used, like he would go in the studio and try to get them to play different things and, and not to write songs. And uh, all he, he says, he tell, the way he tells it, he says, I asked them to give me a, all I want is a generic Los Lobos sound. And he says the only thing he took from those was a guitar lick that comes in on the second verse of the record. Anyway, uh, time goes by. Uh, it, Steve Berlin t- starts doing a bunch of interviews saying that, look, we this was one of our, we, you know, we, we, we were playing one of our new songs. And he t- took some of that, and we thought we were going to get songwriting credit. And that's when the debate on the Internet, there was lots of stuff on the Internet about that. And I, that's why, okay, I, have to, I want to go into it. I love Los, Bo- Los Lobos. I was an early champion of them around Los Angeles. I, I think they've made fantastic music, but they wouldn't do an interview with me. And, and they said, you know, we've this thing's been carried on so long, we don't want to look like we're spending our whole life uh, tied up, hung up over this issue. So that kind of limited me. I talked to Paul at length about it. I talked to Lenny Warnerker at length about it. I talked to the producer, Roy Halley, and got their view of what happened. And it really boils down to this. Lenny Warnerker said, Paul's a creative artist. He's the one who knows best if if they deserve songwriting credit. And Paul said he didn't think they did. They didn't write words. They didn't write melody. They had this guitar lick. And so it's a debate. You go back and forth and back and forth. And after all the time I spent looking into it, I only put about a page in the book because I thought that's all it represented in terms of Paul Simon's career. And again, we could talk about the ins and outs of Graceland, both as an artistic achievement and sort of a whatever, a controversy. But, uh, you know, as as we wrap up, I mean, you know, Paul is on a tour now that is billed as a retirement tour. And, and unlike many other people, he may really mean it. It does seem like it. What's behind, and, you know, he also might not make another record. So what's, and that's after two albums, his last two albums were, were quite great. But what's behind this apparent retirement in your mind? Well, he's 76 now, I think, and he's he spent his whole life making music, and there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress because he always had these standards. He you know he never took the easy way out, and he sacrificed so much just before Graceland period, uh, that Graceland period. He, you know his relationships, his marriages, everything suffered because all his time was tied to that music. After Graceland. He became a little bit more balanced. He gets married to Edie. They have a wonderful relationship. He gets involved in philanthropic things about uh, environmentalist campaigns. And he's wondering, 
he enjoys the balance. You know, not not having music in the studio and touring your whole life. And the thing he found the least comfortable was touring as he got older. It wasn't as much fun. It was harder on him physically. So what he has said is no more tours. He might do an occasional benefit concert, but... And he might write more songs, and he might try to write a Broadway play. He's got the freedom now, he feels, for the first time in his life, to do anything he wants. And I, he's already been working on one album that I, I, I don't know if he's announced it yet, but it's coming out in the fall, that he takes 10 or so of his old songs that he particularly loved that weren't hits, and he's rearranged them hoping to give him a second chance at becoming a hit. And so, and he might make another whole album someday, but it, it, right now it's a blank slate, and he's relaxed, and he's happy, and, he's, and he was thrilled. I got an email from him the night after the opening show in Vancouver. It was so emotional. The audience was so gracious. He felt so good singing those songs. Uh, but you know what was also fun, Brian, was the, the, the he... Paul loved baseball before music, and he just still loves baseball. And he was so excited in the email because the next night in Seattle, he was going to throw out the first pitch at the Seattle baseball game. Yeah, so he, and he never changed. You started your book talking about the, the first sentence of your book is, uh, is about Paul's love of baseball. Robert Hilburn, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, check out his new book, Paul Simon, The Life. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106, on Friday at 1 p.m. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.